Hey everyone, welcome to the special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host today, Susan Deniker, with the law firm Steptoe & Johnson PLLC out of West Virginia. On the program, we span the globe and receive updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we have a fun topic to discuss for employers, and that's the do's and don'ts of background checks, which are more complicated than you think that they would be. But we've got a great guest who's going to break it all down for us. Our guest today has recently published on this topic and provided important information for employers in determining what they can and can't do when doing employment background checks. Joining us today is Evan Way, an associate at Crow in Dunleavy in Oklahoma. Evan, welcome to the program. We're so glad to have you. Hi, Susan. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and I'm really excited to talk about this. I'm an employment law geek just like you, and so this is just a great topic to start with because, as I said earlier, background checks seem so simple, right? Employers should be able to do them, and it seems like easy enough. You get a check, you make a decision, but you're about to tell us, I think, that it's far more complicated than that. So let's start at the beginning, Evan. Why should employers be thinking about doing background check processes if they're not already doing them? Yeah, background checks offer a great opportunity for an employer to confirm the applicant's credentials to make sure that what they said during the interview and provided on their resume is actually true, which goes to reduce the risk of hiring an applicant that might have a history of, you know, theft from an employer. And it'll mitigate any potential negligent hiring claims, negligent retention claims you may get. And if we've seen more of a push towards these workplace violence claims through OSHA, that you know the failure of the employer to really look into the background of an applicant could draw that claim later down the road because they kind of have a duty to make sure the workplace is a safe environment for their employees. That's a really good point, Evan. So the idea is that employers should be on notice if there's something in an applicant's background that could show that they are going to be unsafe or could do something to harm folks. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think that, you know, the crux of it, that really is where the workplace violence comes in. And, you know, it's an ongoing obligation that employers have. So we're talking about background checks in the application process, but they continue throughout the entire employment process. And you may consider using as an employer background checks, you know, periodically just to ensure that you're keeping up with these requirements. So that's interesting, Evan. Can you do them anytime or can you do them only when you're hiring people or promoting them? Are there criteria for that? Now, you can essentially have, if you have a policy in place for when you run background checks, you can do them throughout that. And you may also have, you know, reasonable suspicion or probable cause that one needs to be done just based upon alleged employee misconduct. And that may trigger it. But it doesn't, just because they're already your employee, you're still going to have the same reporting requirements and obligations you would as if they were initial job applicant. We think about background checks kind of generically, like, oh, we're going to run a background check or employers should run background checks. But there is more than one kind. Is that right? Yeah, you have a non-exhaustive list, but the most common you might run, you know, a criminal history background check or a credit score background check. And as it's increasingly becoming more common are social media background checks. Each one of these are really going to depend on the employer. Some employers, it may not be necessary to know the criminal history in depth or a credit score, just maybe something an employer doesn't matter. But if you're hiring for a position that has financial responsibilities or duties, you may want to know that credit score. 
And the same with social media. It may not matter. And you worry about, you know, you could unintentionally make a decision based on social media because you make a decision based on a protected class. So some of these third parties are really good about scrubbing that information out before you see it to protect the employer. But if an employer is doing it on their own, there is a possibility of drawing a claim from that. So different kind of background checks can be done depending upon what your needs are and your interests are as an employer. Can you do those just on your own or do you need the consent of the applicant or your current employee before you run those? So if you're just doing in-house background checks, you do not need consent because you won't trigger the requirements under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I say you don't need consent, but best practice is still to probably have consent so that you have it on file and so that the employee is aware it's being done. If you use a third party, like a consumer reporting agency is commonly CRAs is what it's referred to in the Fair Credit Reporting Act. These include credit bureaus like Experian or TransUnion, private investigator firms, collection agencies, detective agencies, and the emerging internet and social media screen services. So if those are used, then you're going to trigger your requirements underneath the FCRA and go through the requirements to give the appropriate notice and written consent from the employee before you run the background check. So now it's getting interesting. Now we're really getting into the nitty gritty here because we're talking about the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which has a lot of requirements that I think, Evan, a lot of employers don't know about. They think that sometimes employees can just sign something and that's good enough. But the Fair Credit Reporting Act has a lot of specific requirements in terms of, you mentioned notice. So could you expound upon that a little bit? Like, what's the information you need to give to somebody before you run a background check with a third party that would trigger the Fair Credit Reporting Act? So let's say you've triggered the Fair Credit Reporting Act because you're using one of these consumer reporting agencies. The notice you give will say, this is a notice that you're having a background check run pursuant to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, where we've seen employers kind of run into trouble is they may throw the state requirements in that disclosure, that notice disclosure at the same time, or they may throw other things in there. Most often it appears in click wrap for you know large volume employers that are hiring through online resources. They're saying, click, I agree. And they've agreed to a whole slew of things to include the FCRA. And that has been problematic to say the least for some of these employers down the road. I think that that's a really good point. And also that authorization has to be separate from the application itself. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. And that's where, like I said, on that click wrap there, they're doing the application at the same time. They're consenting to it. But the FCRA, if you're going to use that, just needs to come up on its own screen, its own page, its own document, and make sure that your applicant really knows what they're consenting to. I think that that's really great guidance. And and listeners, you're going to hear a lot of other good points today that I think often are are problems for employers because they don't know that these very specific requirements are out there. So Evan, what happens if an applicant or current employee says, I'm not going to agree to that. You don't need to be digging into my private past or, you know, it's none of your business. What does an employer do in that situation? Well, I can only really speak to Oklahoma, which is a strong at will state that that would be a red flag and that would probably terminate the hiring process. We usually do recommend that if an employer is going to run a background check to do it before the offer of employment is extended, but at the same time at the you know end of the you know interview process, that way you're not basing your decision on the FCRA and it may not even be applicable. But short answer, yeah, they can terminate them for that legitimate business reason right there. Okay, so you run a background check and you get some information back 
and it raises some red flags or concerns, what does the employer need to do at that point? Can they just say, fine, either we're not hiring you or we're going to let you go? Is it that simple or are there some boxes they need to check there? Yeah, I guess it goes back to the, you know, the famous lawyer answer of it depends, right? If the employer is going to make a decision based on that background check, they trigger numerous requirements underneath the FCRA. If the employer is making decisions not based on the background check, but for other legitimate non-discriminatory reasons, then the FCRA requirements aren't there, but best practice is to adhere to them anyway, just so that you don't run afoul of an FCRA violation. This is really great because this is where I think it gets really difficult for employers that aren't familiar with the Fair Credit Reporting Act and those requirements. So if an employer gets a background check and based upon that information decides not to extend an offer to an applicant or to let somebody go, that's not the end of the story. They've got specific requirements that have to be met that I think are counterintuitive, right? That you wouldn't just think to do on your own. So help us, Evan, to to not mess this one up. Yeah, so this one does get a little tricky. So it's before you take the adverse employment action. And this applies to either not extending the offer of employment or if you have an employee that is currently working for you, if you're going to take an adverse action against them, you need to give them a copy of the investigation that you actually, or the consumer report that was done here and include a written summary of their consumer rights. You don't need to provide anything else after this. And the FCRA doesn't actually have a time limit between how long you need to allow them to respond to this But we have a little bit of FTC guidance that five days is considered a reasonable amount of time between when you give them this notification and disclosure of their rights before you take the action. So something that I have found to be useful, and maybe you have too, Evan, is is that you can find that disclosure of rights on the internet. And often the third-party reporting agency or the CRA that you referred to earlier, they can give you a summary, but you do need to include that summary of rights with the notice that Evan is talking about. And Evan, it's my understanding that the purpose of that is to give somebody an opportunity to challenge what's come back on the report. Is that your understanding too? Yeah, absolutely. You know, even though these consumer reporting agencies do the best job they can, there may be misinformation on there. And if you're making a decision, like we talked about earlier, based on a credit score, and this individual looks at their credit score and it's in the 500s because they you know, have a collection action against there that they didn't know about or is erroneous. It gives them that opportunity to reach back and say, this was an error. You know, It's been fixed. Here's the documentation to support it. And you can move forward with the employment decision that needs to be made. So going back to your example, five days passes. You've done everything right because the employer has listened to this podcast. They knew all of the landmines. They successfully navigated around them due to Evan's expert guidance. They sent the, we call it a pre-adverse notice, right? Lawyers always have some way of referring to it, but they say that, hey, we're not going to hire you, promote you, maintain your employment, possibly, because we've got this information. We send them the rights. Five days pass. Then what do you do, Evan? Okay. So you have the pre-adverse notice. So then you have your post-adverse action disclosures that you got to make. You can do those orally in writing or electronically. I would caution employers, please don't do them orally. That's just so difficult to prove in litigation down the road that you told them this. But best practice, you know, give it to them in writing and give them notice concerning what the adverse action is. If you're using the credit score in this, as example we've been using, give them notice of the individual's credit score, along with like the range of credit scores that the credit reporting agency used and the key factors that, you know, go into that credit score. 
credit scores always get a little tricky if you rely upon them because additional requirements trigger off additional statutes more often than not. And then provide them the contact information for that consumer reporting agency that provided the report so that, you know, the name, address, and phone number so they can reach out to them if they want to. And this is a long list, but you continue, you know, with the declaration that that consumer reporting agency can't provide specific information for the reason underlying the adverse action, and that it did not make the adverse action itself. And that's a way that the statute protects these consumer reporting agencies for the decisions that employers make. And then they're provided a notice of the right to request and acquire another copy of their consumer report at no charge from the CRA within 60 days. And then a notice of the individual's right to contest the contents of the consumer report if they hadn't already done so between that pre-employment decision or that pre-adverse action decision and that after-adverse action decision. There's a lot there, Evan, isn't there? There is. There is. And we're just kind of, you know, scraping the surface on this because these are what I want to call basic, but, you know, very entry-level background check requirements that trigger for some more positions of power or some more higher decision-making positions that may be hired, you know, you may go a little bit farther and have like a true investigation done, which triggers a whole host of requirements that call one of us if they have those. So that might be another podcast that we get to do, Evan. Well, we can talk to our, to our listeners about that another time. I think our listeners will be glad to know and feel comfort that lawyers are telling them to document. <laughs> so I heard that. Make sure you put it in writing. We always say that, right? Absolutely. It's amazing how much doesn't get documented and how much documents help down the road. Well, the Fair Credit Reporting Act is complicated. There are a lot of hoops that need to be jumped through for employers to do this right. And you've given us a lot of good substantive information today, Evan. But give us the 40,000 foot view takeaway for our listeners. So if you're an employer and you need to be doing background checks, Summarize for us kind of the takeaways that that you needed to have learned from this in-depth discussion about the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Yeah, I think recognizes that there are advantages and pitfalls of using them. Determine if you actually need to run background checks on every employee. It may be so much of a burden or so much of a risk that you just don't need to do it for some lower skilled positions that aren't managerial or don't have that type of control or influence over other employees. And keep in mind what your requirements are if you're doing this, whether you're doing it in-house or using a third party to do it so that you know if you are triggering your requirements underneath the FCRA. And then like so many other things, develop standardized forms and policies that you can implement across the board moving forward to make it a little bit easier in your human resources department. All great advice. We promised you that this was going to be a complicated subject today, but Evan has found a way to break it down and give us the high points so that we can make sure we do it right going forward. Evan, thank you. This has been a really interesting discussion. I know that it's something that's important to all employers. And this is an area that we see where compliance isn't always where it should be because the factors are complicated and often employers just don't know what they were. So I know our listeners really got a lot of value out of this one. And it was just a lot of fun to get to talk with you today. You too, Susan. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. And thank you, listeners, as always, for tuning in. I hope this program has been insightful for you. It certainly has been for me. If you would like to connect with Evan, please click on his bio in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law.
In addition, you can search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive global employer handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Susan Deniker from Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks so much for listening.